0: Hello and welcome to Wilberforce In Conversation, where we bring you discussion with Wilberforce Academy contributors. I'm Paul Huxley, and today I'm in conversation for a second time with P. Andrew Sandlin. He is the founder and director of the Center for Cultural Leadership in California and a regular speaker at Christian Concerns Wilberforce Academy. Andrew, it's good to talk again. Uh, Thank you very much, Paul. Last time we spoke about Christian culture, but this time I want us to speak about marriage. So let's first establish your credentials um, in marriage. Would you like to tell the listeners your experience uh, on the topic?
1: Yes, I've been married um, once and only once to my lovely wife, Sharon. We've been married 36 years. We have five adult children, all at least 30 years old. We had five children in six years. We have three grandchildren ages, I better get this right, hadn't I? 13, 11, and 9. And I suspect we've got a few more grandchildren on the way. So for better or for worse, I do know a little bit about marriage. (laughs) Um, So marriage is just an agreement between two people who love each other, isn't it? No, I mean, that's the modern view. But the biblical view is that fundamentally, uh, marriage is a covenant, which is a sacred bond uh, before God, uh, committing one person to another. Uh, Marriage is also, and it's vital to understand this, Paul, a creational norm, a creational ordinance. In that way, marriage is superior even to the church and the state. Um, Had there never been a fall, there would never have been a church, or at least not the church in a redemptive sense, as we know it. But there still would have been marriage. So to redefine or tamper tamper with marriage is really to redefine the created order. Um, marriage is treated today in a very trivial way and actually in God's way of thinking and in God's order it's not. So um, marriage
0: is a creational order so it's not just for Christians it's for non-Christians too
1: for all kinds of people. That's right that's that's a great mistake Um, we often uh, have marriage ceremonies in the church and that's very desirable because of course there's this picture in the book of Ephesians Ephesians 5 of Christ's relationship to his church itself, being that between, it's typical of of the husband and the bride. Um, But um, actually, I guess the best way to put this is that um, though there are false religions, let's just state it bluntly. um, Married Muslims are still married. Uh, Marriage itself, the institution of marriage is not invalidated because of the failure, even false religion of those involved in it. That's very important for Christians to understand. You know where you really see this? A number of our Puritan forefathers, and I realize a number of our listeners may not have looked upon them as forefathers, but it's interesting. A number of our Puritan forefathers, I think, in overreaction, nonetheless, they opposed church marriages. That's interesting for us to say today. They'd seen some of the excesses of the Roman Catholic Church. And so they believed that marriage was entirely a state-sanctioned institution. But they did understand something fundamental about marriage. Marriage is something that should be recognized by the church, but marriage is not validated by the church. It's a creation ordinance, and it's recognized by the state uh, and should be recognized by the state, even an evil state, as God's creative ordinance so to limit marriage to an ecclesiastical institution really is a mistake and it's it's also important there what you've said that it's recognized by
0: the state and recognized by the church rather than created that's right state oh that's
1: Um, that's a chief distinction i mean biblically god is the one that creates marriage it is a creational institution so god alone creates marriage and that's why it's so inviolate and why divorce though the bible does permit it in certain specific circumstances is such a a brokenness and a failure so you've, um, you've helpfully summarized
0: uh, marriage and what, what marriage really is um, using five C words. So we'll go through those one by one and you can explain uh, what you mean by those words. So um,
1: so you say marriage is communion. Um, yes. You, do you want to explain what you mean by that? Sure thing. Um, the Bible says that t- two being joined together, Paul says, are one flesh. And he speaks of this as being a great mystery. Um, there is nearly an ontological union in marriage, it's quite mysterious. As a Protestant, I can't quite agree with my Roman Catholic brothers and sisters that marriage is a sacrament, yet they do have have a slight point there that in the sight of God, the man and the woman, when they join together in marriage and in this glorious act of physical intercourse, they do, in a sense, without losing their individuality, become one in the sight of God. So there's this glorious commingling and and this is why again that divorce is such a uh, should be an unnecessary thing in God's order, though sadly in a broken society it's, it is necessary at times. But nonetheless, why it's such an undesirable thing because it does create a commingling of man and woman. There's a a, a typical example that's used in terms of um,
0: youth leaders all across the UK. Always use use this particular example when talking about sex about um, gluing gluing a man and a woman together and if you pull pull them apart then
1: things get broken it doesn't doesn't come apart easily yeah that's that and And this yeah that's right and this is one of the main arguments against premarital sex I know that many in the church today even the evangelical church don't talk about it much but that one flesh union creates uh, something very powerful and strong it's important to understand in our society people do not bodies do not have sex people have sex and therefore, it creates a kind of union that is designed for marriage. And to break that union, to break that bond, is something that's very difficult and carries permanent damage. That's great. So, communion,
0: that's the first point. Um, your second point is that marriage is a covenant. Um, we often contrast a covenant with a contract. Yes. Um,
1: do you want to explain it in that context? Yeah, the, or I, I mean, basically, contracts are secularized versions of covenants. Covenants uh, were well known in biblical times going all the way back in the Old Testament, almost to the very beginning. It's a sacred uh, bond and oath made before God. And you'll often see it in movies, a lot of the older covenants and even pagans understood certain elements of the covenant and blood covenants and the spilling of blood and the mingling of blood and uh, the calling down of uh, sanctions and judgment. If one should violate the covenant so um, the interesting thing about a marriage ceremony today is often, most often, that's where the covenant occurs. It's interesting today, people talk about marriage, a marriage ceremony as being a celebration. Come celebrate with us. Well, that's not wrong. But the main aspect of a wedding ceremony is not that it's a celebration, it's an actual covenant making. And the celebration isn't observing this covenant making. But whether there's a celebration or not, the important thing is the witnesses of this covenant-making, of this vow-taking. Again, in the second point, what am I stressing, Paul? You see the, the weightiness of this in strong contradistinction to the sort of casual view of, well, we're joining our lives together and we're going to follow our hearts together wherever it will lead us. And if it doesn't work out, of course, we'll go our separate ways. There's nothing biblical about that. It's A, a covenant is a very weighty thing. And to violate the covenant is really to invoke uh, God's sanctions and judgment. And that's why um, in the Anglican church service for,
0: for, for weddings, um, definitely the word solemn is used. It's a yes. solemn occasion. It's not, yes. not just a, a celebration, but there, is, right. there is a weightiness, yes. a seriousness to it. Lots of people have remarked, because we have um, generally in the West some form of no-fault divorce um, going on, that marriage isn't even a contract, let alone a covenant. That's uh, right if the laws around it aren't in some way enforcing continuation of the marriage, apart from in those particular That's right. circumstances. So communion, uh, covenants. The third one
1: is companionship. Yes. Well, why is that important? Yeah, there's no that goes back also to that creational norm. We hear, of course, God speaking to Adam, and he said, it's not good for the man to be alone. I'd like our listeners to ponder the implications of that statement. We sometimes hear, Paul, um, Christians, well-meaning Christians say, we don't need anyone but God. We don't need any other human. And yet, and yet, though Adam had fellowship with God, God said, it's not good for man to be alone. And I would say on the authority of scripture, in this sense, God was not enough for man. And think about it in this way, because God is not man man, the male needed someone as a counterpart to him. Also created in his image, yet different in a way, not in any way inferior, but different that could be his counterpart. And that's what the woman is. To be this wife is to be the companion, to go with him through difficulties and hardships and joys and the bearing and rearing of children, if God gives them and sickness. And as the uh, traditional wedding vows say, in sickness and in health and in death. So One of the most wonderful things about my wife is, as here at Wilberforce, we're recording this this week, that in many cases when we drive or fly, uh, my wife goes with me because she is my companion. I couldn't imagine, I could not imagine a life without her. I realize that it's possible that it would be sad for me if the Lord were to take her before me, and it would be a different kind of life and a hard life. But as long as we're together, that is that there's that remarkable, divinely established, divinely established, companionship that's a part of what marriage is all about that's great so
0: um so it's not just i mean we'll come on to this i'm guessing but it's, right. it's not just about uh bearing children these kind of things but, that's right but also i mean I, I believe that um in the in the context of, of church history then you had um had a had a view at the time of the reformation where um marriage and and the sexual act were there purely because some somehow there had to be babies created right. and we had to we have somehow, the human race must continue. Yes. Just, just, you know, it's just an awkward kind of thing that has to happen in order to have yes. that. But, um, but Martin Luther, I believe particularly taught against that idea or, or extended that
1: idea and said companionship. It's, Oh is, is no, so, is so a- absolutely. So. I, I think even in the early church, there was of course a, a necessarily negative and almost Gnostic view toward sexuality. And, uh, The notion of the wife as being a companion and not merely a sort of a a body as a means to bring more children into the world, oh, that's flatly contrary to the creational norm of the woman being given to the man as a companion. In fact, if the wife is not treated by her husband as a companion, he is an equal partner. That's the biblical language, partners together of the grace of life. If that's the case, then we're violating God's word. Community is the next one. Yes. So marriage is community. Tell us yes, about that. Yes, yes. A, that's a fascinating point. If you'll think about it, uh, there's much to say here. But uh, we, we think about, of course, the, the main community on earth, often the Christian community, as being the church. That's a vital Christian community. But marriage itself is a community. And it's in some ways patterned after, though not identical by any means to, but patterned after the notion of the Trinity itself as being a community. So here's God, ontologically one, yet ontologically also three. So we might say that, that God in Father, Son, and Spirit have this continuing, eternal, glorious, unfettered uh, community, fellowship, companionship with one another, as only God can. And of course, we can't be like God, as God. And yet, in an analogical sense, marriage, I would say... Again, in a creaturely sense, is the closest thing to this unity of the three persons of the Trinity um, in its in in fellowship uh, and um, uh, community. It's a it's a glorious thing. Um, and I, I the, the final thing I want to say about this is when the when the when the young man stands at the altar with his wife, he is acknowledging that he alone is not sufficient. She is acknowledging. There is, there is no greater visible public testimony against radical autonomy than marriage because the man gives himself and is willing to give himself up his life for his wife and the wife gives herself up willingly also for her husband. That's one of the great beauties of marriage. That complete
0: interdependence Yes, um, that is created by that. And yes. That is, like you say, a remarkable yes. picture yes. to the idea this autonomy live your, own, live your yes. own life, be your rule unto, unto yourself. Yes. Um,
1: that's, that's quite a powerful thing. It is. Do you think that has evangelistic um, implications? Well, that was a shrewd observation, yes. In fact, in my, I think I wrote a chapter in a book recently on that very point. I think, though many evangelicals might not understand it, I think the recovery of the biblical family goes hand in glove with the recovery of the purity of the gospel. Because you can't, and and I would say the undermining of the family is the undermining of the gospel. Think about that for a minute. Probably the the most important and striking metaphor uh, for uh, the relationship between Christ and his church in the Bible is simply marriage. Uh, And then you think about the When children are born, they come into a family. Well, what's the biblical picture of the church? Those are born again. They're born into what? They're born into a family. And the the father and often the mother is considered to be the church itself of Jesus Christ. Uh, This is also, by the way, why homosexuality and lesbianism completely destroy that picture. They destroy the picture of of the father and the son. They destroy the picture of the husband and the wife. So, you, which is another way of saying that you really can't have the gospel without these beautiful pictures established in the creation ordinance of marriage. So, let's come on to the, f- the fifth point.
0: So, we've had communion, covenant, companionship, and community, and then co- cosmology.
1: Do you want to explain that? Yes, that's, that's... I guess word. today that's in some ways the most sophisticated and most, uh, in our time, uh, in the secular culture, most controversial. I said that... Marriage is a a creational norm, and I would like to say, though it may sound odd to some listeners, certainly to secular listeners, that marriage is just as much a creational law or norm as what we call the law of gravity. Now, we wouldn't think of, at least I hope, of a scientist, the the most gifted scientist sitting here in one of the colleges in Oxford saying, you know what, I think actually gravity is um, a social construct. And uh, this is just something that we have come up with and we need to think of ways around it. Well, good luck with that. Um, you may try to go up on eight stories here, one of the beautiful buildings uh, in Oxford and test that by jumping off, but I'm afraid that that you're going to fail. So in the same way, marriage itself is woven into God's cosmology. Now, I know that might sound really Uh, strange, Paul, but just as the planets move in their orbit, just as uh, there's a proper um, ratio of oxygen in the air that we breathe, those things that create life on earth, marriage itself is, is one explicit aspect of the cosmos of how God created things which is to say that as long as the cosmos survives, marriage itself must survive. And to attack marriage is to attack an aspect of the cosmos itself. So if you, if you
0: do attack marriage by yes. redefining it in various ways, which could be the no-fault divorce kind of thing, it could be extending it to uh, same-sex couples or you know, beyond that to multiple partners and, and these kind of things. Um, if you do that, then what does that mean for society? What,
1: what happens? Yeah, we, uh, I like to say that we live in a God-rigged universe. What that means is not that you can't violate those laws. You certainly can violate various laws, including scientific laws, but you can't violate them with impunity. They always lead to destruction. They always lead to chaos. They always lead to hardship. Uh, it's remarkable that we can't recognize that. I mean, we have a uh, we have a history of this since the sexual revolution in the '60s. One could almost forgive the original sexual revolutionaries who didn't, who couldn't detect or foresee the exact consequences of some of their actions, though they were still sinful. But today, to look back and say, "Oh, there are no bad social consequences," we have documentable, discernible, evident uh, consequences of broken marriages, broken lives, broken families. Uh, children without parents all of these consequences of redefining marriage of of adultery and homosexuality and free sex that wreak havoc on a culture why is that because marriage is a cosmology there is a price to pay for violating the cosmology I'm just struck again by that by
0: how much marriage just as a picture and as God defines it strikes against this prevailing worldview of you are you are what you want to be uh, yes. You can become what you want to be. Um, everything can everything can change. Uh, be you know, seek out your dream, the Disney kind yes. of ideal, whatever it is. Um, and how just how countercultural simply
1: marriage really is. It is as, as,
0: as things currently are.
1: I, I was. You may have noticed I was commenting on that recently. I'm, I'm willing to be corrected on this, but I believe that in today's culture, the greatest public act. Of counterculturalism is marriage—a good, sound, uh, long-lived marriage—because it's a, it's a it's a a radical attack on radical human autonomy, which really is the centerpiece of modern culture. And when I say radical human autonomy, at the top of the list of that is radical sexual autonomy. Because let's face it: how do people most demonstrate today, increasingly demonstrate their autonomy? Of course, in their sexual decisions. That's not the only one, but that seems increasingly to be the main one. So, in that case, to be a Christian today really means to stand in, in radical, stark contrast to what's going on in the in the wider culture. So, before we get on to some more things
0: about um, about the way in which we have as a society tampered with um, with marriage, I just don't, I just want to kind of mention the fact that clearly not everyone is married, not everyone no. can be married. Um, what is what is the place of singleness and, um,
1: and 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 that in the church and in as a Christian good question um, I have very definite views about that um, some of them controversial but I'll just touch on it one the Bible is quite clear that God specifically chooses some people to be single Paul himself was chosen to be single our Lord was of course one might say that he was married to the church at some point, but in a not physical, (laughs) yeah. (laughs) There's a discussion about this at the moment, isn't (laughs) there? Yeah, that's right. But uh, certainly not physically. And uh, and of course, Paul wasn't. Uh, But uh, so uh, to those of you listeners that are single, don't assume, particularly if God has chosen you uh, for this life of singleness, you're not some sort of second class citizen. If anything, if God's chosen you for that, it's chosen you in a desirable case to be fully given to himself. Having said that, Paul, we need to be very careful in understanding singleness is not a creational norm. Marriage is a creational norm. So to put it this way in the sort of um, IT or inner, uh, technological language we use today, we would say that marriage is the default and that singleness is the exception, often a good exception and a necessary one. But if you're listening to my voice and you're 25, 26, 27, and you're single, don't just assume because I'm not yet married yet, obviously God doesn't obviously God doesn't want me to be married. I wouldn't make that assumption. You know, God would need to show you that. You use your church leaders and others close to you to show you that. Put that in your heart, which is to say God does want most people, not all people, but God does want most people to be married. It's right there in the creation. It's right there in the initial chapter of what it means to be human. Of course, if you are in that
0: situation, Then you make the use of whatever situation you are in for God's glory. For God's glory, that's right. You know, marriage. I'm married as well. Marriage comes with these wonderful benefits, and is is this um, this glorious picture of Christ and the church, and does all this stuff that we've been talking about. But um, at the same time, there are reasons that Paul gives that um, that singleness can be helpful as well in particular circumstances, certain people. um, That's you have a great opportunity to make the most of. That's right. Um, so, so be faithful where you are, I guess. Absolutely. I agree with all of that. Um, useful thing. Okay, so um, here in the UK at the moment, we've got a complicated situation when it comes to the definition of marriage because uh, a while ago, um, civil partnerships were introduced, um, which, allow, uh, which allowed same-sex couples to um, have something that was legally equivalent to marriage. And... Um, that wasn't then enough deemed to, deemed to be enough to, just to have that those kind of uh, unions uh, legally recognised. But in 2013, uh, the Marriage Act passed, which allowed same-sex couples to be married as well. So you have the the three uh, three possibilities: you have a heterosexual marriage, you have a homosexual marriage, and you also have a homosexual civil civil partnership. Um, there are now um, efforts to to bring along heterosexual civil partnerships as well. Um, so, what should Christians make of that that kind of secondary um, type
1: of union, a civil union um, that isn't called marriage um, in law? Uh, Paul, when you start messing with the cosmology, very strange odd things happen, don't they? So, in the United States, they're called they were called uh, civil unions proposed, and we kind of just leaped over them, right to tragically same-sex marriage. So, the first thing I would say is this category of um, same-sex partnerships is not a Christian or biblical category at all. Understand that in the Bible, the, the only uh, physical sexual relationship that is permissible is between a man and a woman that are united covenantally in marriage. Uh, now, I will acknowledge, and this is an important point, that the, what we call is the ceremony is not as important in the Bible as it has become in modern times, I'm sure this is probably true in, in, in Britain, but in the U.S. there were after uh, a time, sometimes seven years, what's called a common law marriage, which is a man would live with a woman exclusively. And after a while it would, well, you're acting as though this is a marriage. So we're going to consider legally this a marriage because of the implicit vow. I, I understand issues like that, but that's really not what we're talking about here. In these cases, the taking, the, the taking of a vow, a vow between a man and a woman is a vow for marriage and not a vow for a sort of civil partnership. So to, to be together and to be considered together and living together in what looks like a marriage without being a marriage, a man and a woman, is really false. and should not be considered a marriage because it's not. Now, the problem with redefining marriage is it's a redefinition of reality and therefore it's not true. So that's why I never use this little expression, same hyphen sex marriage without the apologetic quotation marks. It's just not a marriage. So we think about those who would come into the church, let's say that are converted. The first thing, let's say that a a couple that were in a, a heterosexual couple, that couple that were in a partnership were to come into the church. They could be accepted into the church and the church need to say, guess what? God bless you. You need to get married. If it's the right kind of marriage, I mean, if, if, if you should be together at all, then you need to be married. Otherwise, you need to be separate. I mean, there there is no other category. And of course, if there there are homosexuals that uh, have been married and want to join the church, they need to. We need to extend them great love and grace, and they need to abandon their quote homosexual marriage and their homosexuality, like we would say of any other. Ongoing sin, I mean, heterosexual or otherwise, drunkenness or or theft or any other unrepentant sin, and follow Jesus Christ. So this, though, is a prime example of how when we subvert and or tamper with and even subvert the cosmology, it creates all sorts of problems. And it gets even more complicated, of course, if children are involved oh, yes. as well. Yes,
0: which, that's which, right. of course, you can have with with same-sex adoptions and uh, and surrogacy
1: kind of You really do. And, and I would say, and I've considered cases like this, certainly the church of Jesus Christ doesn't abandon them or push them away. They say to the congregation, let us become a family. Let us see how can we help these people? How can we help these children? What can you do as a member? What can you do? some cases, you know, the child may have to go with, if there is one parent that's willing to follow the Lord, then go with that parent. I'm saying that these, of course, the Bible doesn't give us specific answers on every case, but the church itself must step in and operate redemptively in these broken situations. But it's an example, isn't it, of, of all of the sticky kind of situations
0: that are caused when yes. when we go away from those creational laws right. Right. and stop recognizing marriage or anything else as yes. it really is. Yes. Um, Then talking about churches um, and marriages and families within churches, um, how can churches and families work together to each recognise the calling of each other? Because you obviously have families within the church that normally go to church together um, and often would sit together, I guess, in church um, and... Churches uh, have a different role, but um, equally one um, that is appointed by God. So how how can churches make the most of family units, and how can how
1: can families help the life of the church? That's a great question. We had a, a movement in the United States. Of course, the United States is full of movements, right? Of what was <laughs> called a group of called the uh, family-integrated or family-friendly churches. Well, if the churches are what they should be, you don't need these separate movements, but I would say a a couple of things in answer to that excellent question. One is to push back against a a trend, even in very good conservative churches, of tending to marginalize or minimize the family in the church. There's a lot of age-gradedness, I think, in the church that's not necessary. Um, For example, again, I'm not saying this is in any way sinful, but a strong emphasis on sort of the children's church to sort of push children out of worship to go... Other places. I think that's though not sinful. I think that tends to be quite unhealthy. I think family needs to come to church and the husband and the wife, and as God gives them children, need to sit together in church. I think that a big part of the ministry of the church, particularly in today's culture in which the family is under such assault, is to preach messages and to encourage very strong families. Um, we need to be careful in our churches, though The family is not a substitute for the church. That is a dangerous error. The family is not the church. Nonetheless, for the church to marginalize the family, the church to say, we are the absolute center of life. Your family is important only to the extent that it is involved in church life. That I would say is equally dangerous. The the leadership of the church needs to spend a great deal of intentional time thinking about how can we assist the family? How can we not schedule events that are gonna be harmful to the family? How are we gonna have uh, create sermons and activities and so on that are gonna bring family members together so they can live as families? I think uh, that should have been the case always, but particularly in today's culture, I think the the church must be, to use the modern lingo, family friendly. So I wanna give you an example of of, of
0: a day I had um, at church once. Um, which I think I think it's a good example of, of how this can look in in practice. Um, sometimes people think that if you if you recognise the family too much in church, then you exclude everyone else who's not in a family in their church. You know, even if they are, you know, if they're a student, if they're away, or these kind of things. Now, I was a student at a university, and I was invited over um, after the morning service to go and have Sunday lunch with with a family. Um, so I went over there and they'd also invited um, an elderly man from the congregation. Um, they were a family of about five, I think. Um, they had, had someone, uh, uh, someone who, who was elderly. Um, they had possibly a couple of people who were from overseas and, um, and were, were just single people. Um, and we all had lunch together. We were all talking about the sermon that we'd had earlier on in the day and, and other things, all, all, all of life. Went out for a walk after that. Came back, had afternoon tea, and then went straight back to uh, the evening service at six thirty. Now that's honestly, I think that was one of the most glorious days of my life, where I saw a a strong family being hospitable, yes, and just church and all of the good Christian discipleship kind of things that you want to happen happen in that context.
1: Yeah, as opposed, I agree, it's beautifully put. As opposed to the consistent tendency, well. These young people, students, are coming. They're not really going to be happy unless we have a separate student ministry. And I'm not criticizing student ministries at all. They have their place. But if we all put them together, you know, all of the 21-year-olds and 20-year-olds, and they go off and do something, and the quote, families do something else, I think that really, they're though, though not uh, sinful, they're missing a huge blessing and benefit for these young people to see what good hospitable families look like. Now, I would also make another point here. You didn't ask it, but I'm going to say it. Because I've pastored churches and preached so often, I often hear the notion about, you know, children being in church and families. Well, we want children excluded from worship because they distract from the service and distract from preaching. And I do realize in some cases, if they're very loud, then they have to be taken out and addressed and there can be cry rooms. But I must say, I think very little of a preacher that can't preach louder than a child can cry. A congregation needs to be trained to recognize. And if they're little children that are unruly, that's okay. Those that are around them, take them to their parents and everyone doesn't have to stop the service because a child is unruly. It's, it's training a congregation to be friendly. And this, I think, is a key. I think children will... Uh, behave better and their department will be what it should be in church if they're treated with great respect, like they should be there. In our congregations, little children, even three and four-year-olds, they would come in and eyes the pastor would go up and shake their hand. It's good to have you here. I'm so glad you're here. We're so happy you're here. And give them a hug and let them, let them, they should feel like this is a place where they're welcomed, a place where they want to be. We would often in our church have what sadly is kind of lost. Many of the older churches, every Sunday, the pastor would give a children's sermon. Well, I would give every Sunday a five to seven minute children's sermon, all Sherman. all the children would come down front and I would have a very short sermon. And they loved, when that time came, they would race to come down there because they knew this is a place, the church where they're loved and cared for, rather than, well, this is an adult place and we're not supposed to be here. They should be welcomed and understand that this is the Lord's house and they're always welcome there. So
0: we've, we're running out of time. So uh, let's just... Uh, go into a few practical things, yes. um, because it's not just about the theory of of marriage being a good idea, but also there's the practice of actually being married and and um, and being faithful to those vows yes. that you make is difficult um, uh, with all kinds of pressures. Um, so I, I just would like to like to give you a few examples of, of of couples in various stages of life and say what kind of what particular marriage advice might might be helpful or what tips might be helpful. Um, to people at particular kind of times of their life, okay? So firstly, what would, what, what's the number one thing you want to tell a, a
1: newly married couple? Yeah, that's a good, there's so many things, but the number one thing I would think I, is to tell them, this might sound not quite as spiritual as some people would say, but recognize that if you persevere in marriage and are faithful to one another, marriage only gets better and better and better with time. I think it's rightly said, even by some uh, secular students of of marriage, that the first five years of marriage often are the most difficult. You're adjusting, you have a, man and a young man and a young lady, very different backgrounds, different expectations, different views. But if they will just come together and recognize there has to be compromise and get on their knees before God and forgive one another and work through these differences, if they just persevere, The blessings of perseverance in marriage far outweigh any difficulties, which in retrospect seem quite minor. That's really helpful. Thank you. And next
0: kind of hypothetical couple. So it's parents with young children. Yes.
1: Um, What would you say to them? Yeah, You know, I would say to that, uh, as being one who wasn't always as good as I should be, I think I would recommend that you dads really help uh, wives with their younger children and go out of your way to assist them in their tasks. And it's very easy for husband and wife, but particularly the wife and mother, to be very weary during that time for all that she has to do. Persevere through that time. And let, of course, I'm, I'm not dealing specifically now with the child-rearing aspect, but more with the marital aspect. I think it's very important for husbands to help their wives with those children. That's a critical fact. That's a challenge to me, no, <laughs> amongst no, others. Yes, take it, it from one who very, failed at very that.
0: Yes. Um, how about a situation where um, there's a couple who married but they're unable to have children for whatever yes. reason? What would you say to them?
1: Yes, uh, that's very good. The Bible says God opens and God closes the womb. And uh, here's a great blessing. You know, it's <laughs> we need, though children are themselves a blessing of the Lord, the Bible says that. You remember, speaking of creational norms. The God saw Adam and Eve, and He created them. And before there were any children, He looked all of creation, and how did He describe it? Very good. You don't have to have a. You don't have to have children to have a very good marriage. So, if God doesn't give you children, if you feel that you should have, and you can always adopt, I would be strongly opposed to the kinds of artificial methods, which we don't necessarily have time to go into, but uh, essentially surrogate motherhood. We would call it womb rental and so on, Uh, not opposed. There's biblically, there's uh, no reason to oppose artificial means that will help that same couple in their own bodies to bear children. There's not certain methods. That's, That's fine as long as it's within the parameters, the creational parameters, but to go outside those parameters to have children. And I think this is the other autonomous thing. People feel they're entitled to children. Well, I deserve to have a child. And therefore, if we can't have one physically, or I'll wait until too long to get married, we'll just sort of, we will use someone else to have a child. No, live with how God, in the situation in which God placed you, and glorify Him in that way. And obviously,
0: you're still able to pray, and you're still yes. able to um. help other. You know, you can you can still be helping bring up a, a young generation of, of Christians without without being mother and father. That's right. Final example. Um, so. A married couple who uh, had some children, and now the children are gone. They're off at university. They're off uh, doing their own things. Empty nesters. Uh, what would
1: what would you say to them? Well, that's us now. And I must say that though I love our children to death, it's the greatest time ever. We, uh, my wife, was uh, got pregnant with our oldest child. He's just finishing his PhD in University of British Columbia. Um, he's thirty five. About two months, I think, after we were married, or a month, two months after we were married, and so. We basically had children either in the womb or in the home for a long time. Um, I think the final piece of advice here, and Paul, I'm glad you brought this up. This is really critical. A number of our friends we've talked to about this. Though children are a great blessing, you've got to make sure throughout your marriage that children are not the center of your marriage. Because they will grow up one day and leave as God intends. That's God's intent. And so stay in love with one another and close to one another. Because one day that's all you'll have. You will have your children as children, adult children and friends, but not quite in the same relationship as when they were small and in your home. So I would say never make your children the center of your marriage. Often make one another under God's authority, of course, the center of your marriage. That's a fantastic place to leave it. Thank you very much for that. Again, would you like to tell us where we can read more from you? Yes, um, this very moment... I mean this very moment. Go to your browser and check out Christian Culture, written solidly.com, christianculture.com. That's Center for Cultural Leadership's website. And I blog fairly regularly at docsanlin.com. And there are all sorts of other things. You can get books and writings and articles and speaking engagements and so on by checking out those. Thank you so much.
0: Um, As well as that, open up another tab in your browser, and you can go and like us on Facebook at, at facebook.com forward slash ccfon. Please also go to, uh, if you don't already receive our news emails, you can go to christianconcern.com forward slash sign up. I'd really value if you have any thoughts or questions, feedback about what we've been talking about uh, or any of these um, these little discussions, please let me know. Do email me at info at christianconcern.com. I'd love to hear from you. Um, but do as I say sign up for our emails uh, because
1: those emails will also let you know when there are more discussions like this available thanks again for listening